One of the uh, just thrilling stories that comes down through uh, the church fathers is found in, in these Antonicene fathers. These are all of the stories and teachings of the early church from the apostles, the end of the apostles to the Nicene Creed in 325. And one of the stories that's told here is about St. John the Apostle going to a bathhouse in Ephesus. Now in those days, when you wanted to get cleaned up, you didn't go turn on the shower like you do in your house or mine, you went down to the bathhouse. So St. John, in the custom of his day uh, in Ephesus, goes down to the bathhouse to, to get cleansed. And as he's sitting there in the bathhouse, and uh, he looks kind of through the steam, and he sees across from him, Serenthus. Now, Serenthus is a name you may not know. Praise God, you don't know his name. But he was very prominent at the time, and he was a very prominent Gnostic. And he believed, for example, that Jesus was just a man and that the Spirit of Christ descended upon him at his baptism and left him at the, uh, at the crucifixion. And he looked forward to the time when there would be a thousand-year reign of sensual pleasures uh, in the last of days. So when John perceived this was Serenthus uh, there in the, uh, you know, in the bathhouse, he immediately got up and fled the bathhouse and said, and I'm quoting here from the, the, the church fathers, by the way, this comes to us from uh, Polycarp, who was martyred 86 years old and had a 20-year overlap with St. John, and then passed this down to Irenaeus, which it comes to us, and he says, as John fled the bathhouse, he exclaimed, let us fly, lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. <laughs> wow. Now, I bring this to you because uh, of how it's actually introduced uh, in the text by Irenaeus. And he's talking about Polycarp and how Polycarp passed this down to us. And he says to us in the passage, having always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles and which the church had handed down and which alone are true. Now, what is, he's talking about here is this linguistic yoke which happens in the New Testament and continues to this very day of what Apostle Paul called, for example, what I have received, I pass on to you. The Greek words are paralabon and paradoka. And ironically, Paul uses this language in both word and sacrament. When he introduces the Eucharist, he says, what I received, I passed on to you, then the night that I was betrayed, he took bread, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how he introduces the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Later, when he's talking about the core of our proclamated faith, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried on the third day he rose from the dead. It almost gives this great creedal moment in the Apostle Paul. This idea of receiving and passing on is crucial to the whole nature of the gospel. God's provenient grace, our response to that grace. God's divine inbreaking, our response to that inbreaking. That's why Jude 3 says, we contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. It presumes a delivery has happened, and we're contending for that delivery. 1 Timothy 6.20 says, he, Paul admonishes Timothy to guard the deposit of the faith entrusted to you. This is the most crucial part of your ministry. This is why 
2 Timothy 2.2 2 says that this is the pattern that what we've learned from others, what we've been discipled, we faithfully entrust to others. Now, it doesn't matter what you call it, whether you call it historic faith or orthodoxy or evangelicalism or being faithful to the apostles. We don't care what you call it. Just live by it. Faithfully pass on what you've received. It's not up to us to remake up the gospel. We don't have the privilege to like twist it around and make it say something we would like it to say. Our job is to faithfully receive and to pass on. And if you do that, then you are bearing the, the marks of the Asbury tradition and I think the apostolic tradition. But I want you to see, though, is that when we talk about the apostolic tradition, especially the, the period leading up to the Council of Nicaea, we think of it mostly in terms of the doctrinal deposit. You know, we should always faithfully reproduce the great doctrines of the faith as found in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasius Confession, and, and that is absolutely true. It's never, ever, ever less than that. But when you actually read the Church Fathers, and I hope that when you graduate you'll get all like 30 volumes of it. It's fabulous reading, but uh, and this is just volume one. I love every volume. They're all fantastic. But what's great about it is not simply that it passes on the doctrines of it. You have to pass on and understand the spirit of the whole thing. The apostles are not just people passing down doctrine. They are embodying the faith with all of its ethical richness, all of its moral vibrancy, all of its heartfelt, you know, kind of just causation in the world. They are living out the faith, and we have to pass down both the doctrine of it and the spirit of the whole thing. We live in a day when, of course, we've lost so much of the prophetic imagination of the people of God. Jesus has been domesticated in a hundred thousand ways. The grace of God turned into weak legalisms. The hijacking of the gospel and theology to language of business, language of self-help, of therapy, of entertainment, of Christian nationalism, and on and on and on it goes. From the left and from the right, it can be very, very destabilizing. And so part of our, you know, we're like, in some ways like Luke 10, you know, uh, when Christ in 72, we send you out as sheep among wolves. Welcome to ministry in the 21st century. But if you actually read the church fathers, that's the only world they knew. Oh, by the way, I have a picture of John fleeing the bathhouse. I only found one. In the history of art, only one person had the courage. And I love this part. The problem is, I want to see him run out with a towel around him. This is way too domesticated. He ran out with a towel around him. Okay. All right. But at least somebody painted it. God bless him. When you read the Old Testament, uh, as a general rule, the Old Testament teaches indirectly through narratives. Um, oftentimes you have narratives that were like today's text where things are put out there, an amazing story. Uh, like the Church Fathers with John, no commentary, not a lot of footnotes, not a lot of, a lot of your questions aren't asked, answered in this passage. In fact, a lot of people say that in their whole lives, sitting in church every Sunday, no one ever preached from 1 Kings 13. <laughs> Are you surprised? 
it's just so, I mean, like, where do you even begin with all the questions that come to mind when you hear this account? And so part of the, the beauty of the Old Testament is that the Old Testament allows us to, get, to garnish the wisdom of the text, the amazing truth of the whole thing, and, and we have to kind of just absorb it through the, the narrative stories. This, again, this is more than doctrine. It's also kind of the spirit of the Old Testament and how these things get passed down. So 1 Corinthians 13 is devoted to this story, and as you heard, the prophet Jeroboam has completely hijacked the revelation of God in Jerusalem, and he set up his own kind of rival thing in the north. And he has his own priests that aren't Levites, and his own sacrifice, his own altar, everything is, he's kind of done his own thing. And so uh, the prophet from Judah is called to go up to Bethel and to denounce him and to pronounce God's judgment upon him. And so uh, he was told to go up there, do your business and get back. Do not eat and drink anything. Go up there, deliver God's judgment, and come back down. So the prophet sets out from Judah. He gets up there and the place is packed out. This very you know, solemn service. The incense is going. The sacrifice is happening. The priest in their robes, all the rest. And suddenly the prophet gets there and he has one of these moments, you know, like, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Makes his way to the front. And finally, he gets to the front of the pack, and he points out his hand, and he pronounces the judgment of God on the king in front of everybody. This is like one of those uncomfortable moments. <laughs> and he says to him, and in proof of this is judgment of God, that God's going to raise up a faithful king, Josiah, he says, uh, the altar will break open and ashes will come out. Well, the minute he pronounces judgment, the king points his finger out and says, seize him. Well, the minute he does that, his hand is, is uh, paralyzed. The altar splits open. The whole thing splits in half and ashes come pouring out in fulfillment of the word of the Lord. And at that moment, the king turns from, sees him to, let's have lunch together. Because the word of the Lord was so obviously authenticated in that very moment. Now, he, of course, is faithful, and he tells the king, if you gave me up to half your kingdom, I would never sit down and have a meal with you. I'm not going to eat anything or drink anything. I'm going to go back home because the Lord told me, come up here, pronounce this, and go back home. But meanwhile, there's the old prophet from, uh, from, from Bethel who some, one of his sons came to him and said, hey, well, those moments like, I'm sure you've had this, you're not going to believe what happened in church today. <laughs> Have you ever had that time when someone comes home and says, you're not going to believe it? They came up, you're not going to believe what happened today. And they tell the whole story to the prophet. And he said, well, which way did they go? And, and like the uh, Magi of years later, they had gone home by a different way. He found out, they tracked him down, and there was the prophet of Judah on his way back home. And the, uh, the, the, he, of course, explains to him what he wanted to do, and he wanted you to come back and have me with him. He, I, I can't do that. The Lord has told me to go and come back and, uh, and, and not to eat or drink anything, to return back to Judah where I came from. Ah, but then the old prophet flashed his clergy credentials. Hey, I'm one of you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a prophet. I'm ordained. I got the card. The Lord speaks to me too. 
Come, have a meal with me. And so he does. They have the meal. The God's judgment is pronounced against him by the old prophet. Again, the questions are immense here. The obedient prophet who had faithfully delivered the word of God then tries to go back home and a lion attacks him and kills him and leaves him dead. Wow. At this point, Jessica's going to come forward and to give the interpretation. <laughs> I was just doing the introduction. But let's, uh, let's do a little unpacking here. Because Jerobo- Jeroboam is clearly a very impressive leader. Uh, 1 Kings 11.28 calls him a man of standing. Uh, Solomon had put him in charge of all of his forced labor. This was a man of great presence and power. And what is often not known is that God, I mean, it's obviously known to the text, but not widely talked about, is God met with Jeroboam and extended to him the same promises, potentially, that he gave to David. He said to him, if you follow after me, I will, I will never have you one of your descendants lacking from the throne. You, you will serve me forever, you and your descendants. In other words, God was prepared to bless Jeroboam and to make him into a great uh, dynasty of faithfulness toward God in the, nor- in the north. But Jeroboam chose the way of idolatry. In fact, what happens is Jeroboam eventually opposes himself to everything related to the revelation of God, has his own rival uh, priesthood, rival everything, and eventually he is, becomes the gold standard, if you want to use that expression, for unfaithfulness in the kingdom. And so, for example, over 20 times throughout the whole history of the kings in First and Second Kings, whenever a northern kingdom, a king is rebellious and turns of wickedness, which is all of them, uh, they say he followed after the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Do a Google search on that. It's a lot. So he becomes known as he represents unfaithfulness, idolatry to God. His whole idea, I think, is that essentially he's the center of revelation and he wants to do it in his own way. Man is the measure of all things, said Protagoras. Well, in many ways, that is the spirit of the age we live in. I mean, Jeroboam represents the whole cultural counter-revelational world that we live in, which says God doesn't count. Revelation is nothing. We, we are what we are. We, we are the measure of our work and our effort. That is the culture and largely the culture of the world that we live in is the spirit of Jeroboam. The Old Testament prophet from Bethel, we don't even know his name. Um, he's, an, he's not a political leader like, like Jeroboam, not a king. He's a prophet. He's an insider to things of God. He's like a clergy. And if, if he had been reliable, he's already in uh, Bethel. If he was so reliable, why wouldn't God have called him to go and pronounce judgment on Jeroboam? Instead, his sons were there in the room participating in it. So Jeroboam is not a reliable prophet, and yet he there uses his credentials, his background, his insiderness to deceive the prophet of God. This is the decaying hulk of human religion gone stale. This is why Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. I have seen so much in my 
career in ministry of people who, who get to the point, you know, they go through their whole ministry or much of their ministry, and several things will happen. You have people in the height of their career or, or their ministry with decades of faithful service who throw their entire career away for 15 minutes of sexual immorality. Don't think it could never happen to you. Entire, can you imagine throwing away 25, 30 years of ministry for 15 minutes of pleasure? But Satan does that. I have seen people who their entire lives are faithful and in retirement they turn against the very gospel that they spent their whole life defending. This is the kind of sermon you need to go back and listen to in the year 2042 and 2052 because it's something you have to always remember to keep your vigilance in the gospel. This man, this old prophet, really is the fading shell of the prophetic office. It's through the whole history of the church, Paul says, they have the form of godliness but have denied its power. And just because somebody has on robes and stoles and titles and pens doesn't mean that they are bearers of the word of God. And that's hard for us to accept sometimes. But hear this, from the bottom of my heart, those of us that have been given the great privilege, the unbelievable privilege of giving a, been given a ministry of proclaiming the word of God, me, you, all of us here, we are never exempt from obeying the Word of God. Amen. The ministry, I don't care how effective, how many people come to your church, how much your ministry programs are growing, it is, all of that is wonderful. But all of the ministry of proclaiming God's Word never, ever, will ever exempt us from obeying the Word of God in our own lives. Now, when you read this story, and part of the angst of it is that we always look for heroes in a story. You say, well, okay, uh, can't be Jeroboam. No way. He's, just a, he's the symbol of unfaithfulness. It really can't be the old prophet because his, his whole thing is a, this is a deception. Uh, his whole life is to deceive and to use his insiderness to bring down yet another young clergyman. Uh, it really can't, unfortunately, even be the young prophet, even though from, from uh, Judah, even though he was faithful and he did his bidding and he went up and delivered it faithfully, he did, in fact, get off track at the end and he was judged by God. But there is a hero in the story. There is a hero in the story. It's the lion. <laughs> now, the lion... God's okay with using animals. I mean, you know, there's Balaam's ass. There's, uh, the, you know, the, the fish of, of uh, Jonah. It's okay. We, we can get there theologically. <laughs> it's all right. The lion. Now, the lion, it's very important to watch what happens to the lion. The lion goes and he attacks the prophet because God told him to do it. And the lion stands there. He doesn't eat or drink anything. He simply does what he's commanded. It, this is supposed to shock you. Lions don't just go attack someone and just stand there. <laughs> they have their meal. 
he didn't have his meal. He just stands there. The reason that's so important is because otherwise you're like, oh man, how tragic. You know, those roads between Bethel and Jerusalem are so bad, they're so dangerous. I said, we need to put up some fences on those roads. The lions come in there. You know, oh, what a tragic accident. No, 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 no. You, you can't go down that road. This is not about tragic accidents. The lion was sent by Yahweh to announce the judgment of God on the young prophet, and he did it. And he's waiting for his next assignment. <laughs> he didn't eat or drink anything. He's just waiting. That is servanthood. This is the last eighth part in this series of servanthood. Servanthood is doing what the master commands. That's it. It's not complicated. It's doing what the Lord commands us to do. There are a lot of other voices out there, but ultimately our voice is to do the will of God. If you can go to your rest, uh, your eternal rest with that, you have been a servant of God. So John in the bathhouse sees Serenthus. I think at that moment he might have thought about 1 Kings. i got to get out of here. I'm not going to be a part of this. What I love about it is not, there's no doctrines mentioned in the text. It's the spirit of the whole thing. It's the vibrancy of the apostolic tradition that they were determined to maintain their absolute vigilance to be found faithful to Christ. That's the spirit that energizes the whole thing. And of course, out of that flows all the great truths of the gospel we sing about. All that's wonderful, but there's a vibrancy because they had been transformed and they knew that was the key to the transformation of the world. May we go forth as those kind of servants into the world. Amen.